2020 is a year we will never forget. Need I say more? The resiliency, creativity, coping mechanisms that people have developed around the world have been both awe-inspiring and comical. In the early days, we watched as people in Europe sang from apartment windows. They serenaded outside nursing homes, and they even did daily synchronized aerobics from their balconies. We learned the art of zooming in our boxers while wearing a dress shirt up top and hopefully remembering to turn off the camera when we went to the restroom. We planted gardens, we learned to bake bread, we picked up old hobbies, and I distinctly remember Deb LaForge telling me in the second month of the pandemic that she had cleaned her house within an inch of its life. I'm sure she's not alone. We gained weight, we all got Disney Plus subscriptions, we made the most of our Netflix accounts, and we lost our tempers as we try to juggle working and schooling and taking care of pets who are apparently home all day long. Many of us rediscovered the art of an actual telephone conversation. We felt the ache and the sadness of this suffering and we longed for it to go away. And for those of us who did not try to get that ache away by Marie Kondoing our house into submission, perhaps we joined the millions of Americans who turned to over-the-top Christmas yard displays that went up as early as July. A quick Google search will reveal a trove of new news articles that cover this phenomenon of putting the Christmas lights up early in 2020 with titles that read like the Washington Post, it's dark outside. Families are putting up Christmas lights early to offset the gloom. Perhaps more than any other year, we have longed for Christmas, and we have depended on the hope of Advent to cure the ache. But now what? The thing about anticipation is that the buildup can be magical, but the day after and the week after, we can crash hard. Do you remember what it felt like to be a kid? It was literally like an entire year between Thanksgiving and Christmas as you waited the buildup so intense for me I got so wrapped up in Santa Claus and sugar cookies and gingerbread houses that my mom swears I threw up every Christmas Eve until I was in junior high. But I also remember what it felt like the day after Christmas and two and three days out. There was a sense of disappointment, a sadness, a letdown. That's it? Now what? Have you ever felt it? The anticipation building up towards a moment in time in your life, the joy of that moment, and then the inevitable crash that comes after the last of the family and friends have left, after the last decoration has come down, when there's nothing left to buy or bake or give or take, when the house grows quiet again and the silence fills your heart and your mind and the ache comes back, the one that the anticipation staved off and distracted you from. And you find yourself wondering, now what? I wonder if Mary felt this way. The Annunciation, the star, the shepherds, sitting with her cousin Elizabeth while John the Baptist and Jesus kicked inside their mother's womb. The long trip to Bethlehem, giving birth in the manger, the wise men, the shepherds, the gifts, Herod, and hot pursuit. This was a highly anticipated moment in life. But then what? She just went home to be a mom. We don't have any recorded stories in the canon of angels or preschool miracles or anything flashy that accompanied Jesus as he grew up. Just a mom and a dad 
who went home to raise a baby into a toddler, into a boy, into a man who was already the Messiah, the long-awaited one. To the best of our knowledge, there was no fanfare, no angel perched at the gate of Jesus' boyhood home, serving as a reminder to all who passed by that the Christ child was in there growing up. What a roller coaster Mary and Joseph embarked on as they received that news that they would bring Jesus into the world, but then what? I wonder if they felt a little bit let down as they set out to quietly raise Jesus in the unglamorous obscurity that's parenting. Maybe Mary knew that ache too, as she nursed in the middle of the night, unsure of what she was supposed to do now that all the fanfare had gone away and there were no more angels, and she was left to raise the holy of holies. Did Jesus come with operating instructions? How to raise the Christ child? Was there a book? Or did she also have this fear and sense inside of her that she may not know exactly what to do next? The Bible is full of these now what moments. God makes a promise to Abraham and Sarah, but it doesn't come to pass right away and they grow anxious. Did they hear God wrong? Should they take matters into their own hands? Their now what lasted for 25 years. The Israelite people, they wandered the desert for 40 years before they finally crossed into the promised land. And God chooses David, a young shepherd boy, to be named as the king. But there is already a king, and David is still a boy. Now what? The Israelite people, ravaged and conquered and in captivity to empire after empire, find themselves asking, now what, time and time again. And perhaps many of them have lost hope by the time Jesus arrives to a teenage girl in a barn. Perhaps this is why those who waited for the Messiah could no longer see him when he arrived, mired as they were in this complex web of religious laws and rituals and moral pursuits as they tried to tend to the ache. But it left them devoid of spiritual eyes to see the Messiah. Then there are the disciples who are constantly asking, now what? The storm is raging, now what? The people are hungry, now what? The crowds are pressing in, now what? Jesus has been crucified. He's dead. We saw the broken body taken away. Now what? Our lives are full of now what moments too, aren't they? What do I do now? Now that the wedding planning is over and the honeymoon phase is worn off and I don't know how to talk to this person. Now that I've lost my husband or my wife. Now that I have a disease. Now that the divorce papers have been signed and are final. Now that my kids are grown and out of the house. Now that I've retired, lost my job, or climbed to the top of the corporate ladder and I still feel empty. Now what? After Christmas has passed and we sit here in the midst of a pandemic that is ravaging our nation and our state in the middle of the worst health crisis our country has ever weathered, no amount of Christmas lights or Christmas cookies can cure that ache. Now what? Our beloved worship pastor, Michael Graham, shared a song with me as I was preparing this message that he wrote for a Woodmont program 20 years ago. It's called One Guest Remains, and the chorus lyrics read this. 
One guest remains, and he is not a babe anymore. As children often do, he grew to be a man, and after all the bells have been rung, and every carol sung, and the old year becomes young, one guest remains. Michael said this about the song. It was my belief then and now that the antidote to post-Christmas blues is knowing the Lord remains after all others are gone, home and the celebration has ended. Now what? One guest remains. So now we abide. What is the answer to the now what that we inevitably face? It's to draw near to Christ, the one whom we have just anticipated through Advent and celebrated on Christmas. We learn to abide with God. I seek you with all my heart, Psalm 119 says. I've hidden your word in my heart. I recount your ways. I delight in your decrees. I meditate on your precepts. The Lord is my portion. Your word is a lamp into my feet and a light into my path. Psalm 119 shows us the way to orient our lives around God's voice in an intimate, personal, and life-altering way. Not because doing so ensures that we get an answer to our now what moments, but because it ensures that we don't walk through those now what moments alone. We keep company with Christ. In our scripture passage this morning, we encounter two people who have learned to keep company with the divine. Luke 2 can be a little confusing on the first read because what we have in today's passage are three different ceremonies that are happening at the temple on the 40th day after Jesus is born. So Jesus is brought to the temple and he is circumcised in name. That's the first ceremony. The second one is a purification ritual required of Jewish women who were considered to be ceremonially unclean after childbirth under Levitical law. And then finally, Jesus is presented for the redemption of the firstborn son ceremony, which consecrates the firstborn of each household to the Lord. These ceremonies are collectively known as the presentation of Jesus at the temple, and they have been depicted throughout time in art, music, and literature. Even Bach wrote a song. This day has become so important in the life of the church that it is still celebrated by the universal church today as one of the holy feast days, and it even marks the end of Epiphany for many liturgical congregations. So in this passage, we encounter Simeon and Anna, giants of the faith. Simeon's name means hearing in Greek. And the passage says that he was righteous, devout, he had the Holy Spirit upon him, and that he was waiting for the consolation of Israel. And true to his given name as one who hears, he had heard the Holy Spirit tell him that he would not die until he encountered the Lord Christ. And because he's so acquainted with the Holy Spirit who is on him, when the Holy Spirit nudges Simeon to go to the temple at a certain day, at a certain time, Simeon goes. And his response, a prayer, is recorded and ultimately called the Nunc Dimites, the Canticle of Simeon. And we read it here in our passage today. Immediately after Simeon speaks the words of this prayer out loud, that he has seen the salvation, that he can die in peace. After he makes this confession that the child in front of him is the Christ child, then Anna, an elderly prophetess, becomes... um, the next mouthpiece. 
She's a widow, and it says that she worships night and day, fasting and praying in the temple. And after Simeon, she comes up, and she beholds the Christ child, and she gives thanks to God. And she speaks about the child to anyone who's looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. Outside of the Annunciation, those who were led to bear witness immediately after birth of Jesus, only Anna and Simeon realize that the baby in front of them is the Christ child, the consolation and redemption of Israel. And they are able to receive this revelation because they have become acquainted with the Holy Spirit in a consistently deep and abiding way, such that when the Spirit moves, and reveals that this baby is the Christ child, they have spiritual ears to hear. Anna and Simeon had both encountered their own now what moments. Anna having to decide what to do with her life after becoming a widow only seven years into marriage, she leans into her unknown season of grief by dedicating her life to God through fasting and prayer and communion with the community of God who comes to the temple. Simeon lives in a time in history that we cannot understand. It is flourishing. There is cultural expansion everywhere. There are 30,000 state gods. There are so many options of where to put your faith and where to put your beliefs. And so to stay steadfast to a monotheistic faith in this time is very challenging. And yet Simeon does this. And at the same time, the Jewish people have been dispersed and dislocated, and they are growing more and more weary as they wait for the Messiah to come and restore them to their land. And as they grow more weary, they also become more zealously focused on the letter of the law. It's as if they can hold on tight that they might see Christ come. So it's in the midst of this cultural um, moment of history that's growing and thriving and offering so many seductive alternatives that Simeon finds himself with the culture on the one hand and a shrinking faith on the other, with people who are growing more obsessively um, attentive to the law. And he's in this middle place, and yet he still remains steadfast to God in such a way that he can hear the Holy Spirit. Sometimes we miss personally knowing and abiding with God because we get lost in culture or we get lost in church. But Simeon had the ears of the Holy Spirit and he announces to a weary mom who is wondering, now what? That he sees her, that he sees that baby and that Jesus is the Christ. The gift of the revelation that Simeon and Anna receive is not just a gift for the Jewish people who will begin to hear the murmurs that the Messiah has come in the form of a baby. It's not just a miracle or a sign for future generations that gives evidence to Christ's divinity. It's not just a singular act of God's love shown to Simeon and Anna for their faithfulness. This is also a gift for Mary after the fanfare has died and gone away, and she's left to raise this baby with now what on her lips. It's a blessing spoken over she and Joseph that God has not forgotten them after the highly anticipated birth has come and gone, and they've returned back to their home to a village to figure out parenting. It's the reminder that they are not walking alone in the unglamorous, obscure, sacrificial seasons of raising little children. 
part of the beauty of Simeon and Anna is that we see God meeting multiple different people in multiple different stages of their lives and reminding them that he knows them and he sees them and he is faithful in their now what moments. I've had plenty of now what moments in my life. Have you? How has God met you there? I want to leave you with a promise today and a caution and a blessing. We belong to a God who shows up in the temple and is faithful to the prompting of the Holy Spirit. We believe in a God who makes himself known through another person, through a song, a sunrise, a scripture buried in our hearts, a person that comes to us at the right place at the right time. We can personally and intimately know a God who shows up in hospital rooms when we think our loved one is alone. We can personally and intimately know a God who shows up after divorce and loss and finds us in our loneliness. Our God is the God of now what? And it's precisely into your darkest, hardest, loneliest, scariest, most unknowing seasons where God shows up to take your hand and walk alongside of you after the last person has left, one guest remains. The antidote to the gnawing dissatisfaction that leaves you feeling empty-handed in the midst of your riches, to the feeling of letdown that comes after you have reached the top and you have nowhere else to go, the antidote to the deafening silence that creeps in and leaves you feeling utterly alone while completely surrounded by people, one guest remains. The antidote to the post-Christmas blues during the worst health week the state of Tennessee has ever known, one guest remains. Regardless of what you say or do or how you try or don't try, one guest remains. God is near, God is present, God is already among us. God is already abiding in your midst. You needn't do a thing. You can't make it, stop it, prove it, earn it, lose it, bury it, hide it, hijack it, erase it. God is who God is. And that is a God of constant, steadfast, faithful, deep abiding presence. Are you in the middle of a now what moment in your life? Well, then you are in good company, my friend. You keep company with Christ who abides with you. You can respond to this however you would like. You can be like Abraham and Sarah, thinking that they heard God's promise, but not really sure if God is going to deliver. So you're going to take matters into your own hands. The antidote to the ache that is within us is not to fill it up with more stuff or to slap more self-help band-aids on it or to frantically go into fix-it mode, muscling, empowering, and hustling our way through life. We must learn to sit with the ache and trust that God will sit with us and cultivate new life. Rarely does taking matters into our own hands and rushing the process of grief and growth and new life work. We must be people willing to inhabit the dark places because we have with us a perpetual source of light. You might respond like the Israelites who wandered the desert with complaints and blame and anger on their lips. Did you bring us here to die, they moaned. 
Is this all we get to eat out here, manna and quail? Their constant dissatisfaction for the ways that God did show up and provide left them with divided, divisive hearts, and they could no longer recognize God in their midst. That's one way we can respond to the ache. You might respond like the disciples, bless their hearts. They were always willing to do a little problem solving on behalf of their friend Jesus, who clearly did not get the memo of how he should be responding to the now what situations. Didn't he know that they were running late so there was no time for children to crawl over him? Didn't they know, didn't he know that it was a Sabbath so he probably shouldn't be healing or that he shouldn't be at the well talking to a woman about theology in the middle of the day? Peter meant well when he took out his sword and he cut off the ear of that soldier. Who of us hasn't taken matters into our own hands when we're faced with this deep, dissatisfying ache that comes after our anticipation? But we should be warned that our striving and fixing and playing God rarely serves to quiet that which has become disquieted within us. So we learn from Simeon and Anna that in the face of the ache, there is a better way, a way that teaches us to draw near to God because we know that God has already drawn near to us, a way that encourages us to wake up this post-Sunday morning after Christmas and welcome the stillness as a moment in which we might turn our affections towards Christ in her beautiful book, co-written with her mother, our own Anne Stauffer says this, if one senses a disconnect, it's not that a spiritual presence has ceased to be. It's simply that one lacks sufficient stillness. She goes on to say in the book, divine gift love is God wanting the best for all of us and providing for us no matter what. The guidance we need is there simply for the asking. And by asking, we create a relationship with something that is larger than ourselves. The stillness of our now what moments is not a curse, it is a gift. From Simeon and Anna and Ann Stauffer and the faithful among us, we learn that we might find a different way forward when we pray, when we stop, when we inhabit the stillness, when we cultivate awe and wonder for the beauty around us, when we give thanks, when we remember and we recount that God has been faithful to us over and over again, when we have the spiritual ears to hear the voice that cries out, Abba, Father. Keeping company with Christ means that we learn anew what it looks like to abide in the quiet places that inevitably come after the big moments have faded and one guest remains. Galatians 4, 4 through 7 says this, But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. Because you are his sons and his daughters, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has made you also an heir. I leave you with this Christmas blessing this morning. 
Blessed are you, child of God on this post-Christmas Sunday in the midst of a raging pandemic. Blessed are you. You are not a slave to the ache that comes after the last guest has left. You are not a stranger to the child who comes to us in a manger. You have been adopted. You are known. You are God's beloved and heir to the kingdom of peace. So may you know the deep abiding presence of the one who calls out Abba, Father, and meets us in every now what moment. Amen.